what I think would be cool is that if we had a headline like small startup company saves millions from heart attacks using only squirrel parts in the freezer. Can I put something crazy out there? We have now put humans into hibernation and we're sending them to Mars. <laughs> Fauna Bio breakthrough medicine for heart attack or Alzheimer's using just hibernation, like data, just data from animals. That's Linda Goodman, Katie Grabick, and Ashley Zender, co-founders of Fauna Bio. Fauna Bio studies genes in the hibernating animals to find cures for human diseases. On this episode of Think Like a Founder, we talk about their deep curiosity for space and science as kids, going from academia to building a startup, and being okay hearing the word no. Founders are driven by curiosity. Uh, They stay students. And this has been true for all three of you since you were just little kids. Whether it was trips to the library and early interest in veterinary medicine or space camp, you all had a desire to delve into the unknown. So let's start there. What were you like as kids? And Ashley, we'll have you go first. I've asked my mother about this because I was trying to write my founder story fairly recently. And the first story that she came up with, because it sticks with her still, was when I was two or three. And there was a story in the local paper about a baby panda that had died at the zoo. Well, why did the baby panda die? And she said, well, you know, it died. And no, but why? And she said, well, it was too young, but why? And so she had to get all the way down to, well, it was born too early and its lungs didn't develop and then it couldn't breathe and that's why it died. Okay, that's okay. So I had to dig in about five layers and she t- the way she tells it, she's like, and I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> like <at that> point, <laughs> From right? the very- um, yeah, it kind of set the stage, I guess, for that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very cool story. Katie, what about you? So when I was a kid, I would say was very curious and I really wanted to be an astronaut when I was about five years old. And I would just stare off into space. I mean, literally I would look at the sky and I would daydream and I would just think about what it would be like to be up there. And I would imagine being all alone and I'd be floating. And then my mom would come over to me and go, Earth the Kate, Earth the Kate. And I just remember growing up, I would often do that. I would just get lost in my thoughts. And I was very curious about the world and thinking about problems. And my mom would always have to come over to me and kind of wave her hand and go, Earth the Kate, what are you thinking about? So I definitely liked to get lost in my thoughts when I was a kid. Linda, what about you? I think I connected pretty early on with Katie through our mutual love of space and wanting to be astronauts. When I was a kid, um, even as a pretty young child, like 12, I thought this is one of the most valuable things we as a species could be doing is to be exploring the universe and getting off this planet. And I was always really into science. You know, I did science Olympiad in high school. I was also really into sports. I played soccer, volleyball, ran track, and I thought, gosh, I would make a really great astronaut. (laughs) I thought that would be a great career move. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, because I went to space camp twice and thought, this is amazing. They told us, it's your generation that's going to be going to Mars. And I got so excited about that. And then, of course, as I got a bit older, there were a lot of funding cuts to NASA And that sort of looked like a more and more distant dream, unfortunately. So it's going to be, I think, people younger than ourselves who are going to make it there. 
So this interest in science is something that the three of you have in common, and you each took your own path. And that's why the combination of the three of you make this effort to solve disease and help the human condition so profound. But it was a journey. So Linda, you got inspired. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's something that all of the founders at Fauna have in common, that not only our deep love of science, but as you say, this desire to make the world a better place. And for me growing up, that really meant human health. The human genome was published just as I was graduating from high school in 2003. And I thought, wow, genetics could really be the key to curing a lot of human diseases. And so when I went to graduate school, I decided to do my PhD at Harvard Medical School because I thought this has got to be the place where tomorrow's cures are being designed. And to some extent, that's true. But obviously, you know, it's more complicated than I think everything appears at the outset. And, you know, most of these diseases that we're studying, we're finding mutations that just have these tiny, tiny effects on whether or not someone gets a disease. And this started to lead me to this passion about animals and this idea that they share more than 90% of the genes with humans. And they have these amazing ways of protecting themselves against various diseases that humans get. And Katie, tell us how you found your passion for science. I actually did not like science very much when I was a kid. I loved being outside and I loved learning about animals, but I didn't connect with what I was learning in the classroom, which to me, it was just a lot of rote memorization. And so it didn't even occur to me that there were unknowns in science. I just thought everything was known about biology and I, it was my job to memorize it. So it didn't hit on me, but I did have a passion for ski racing I developed in high school. I wanted to be an archeologist at that point and go explore the world and bring new knowledge to humankind about how we our ancestors live. And I got into college and I basically chose my colleges where there were ski areas. So my first college was at Colorado Mountain College in Steamboat Springs. And while I was ski racing there, I also happened to have to take a biology course as a requirement for undergrad. And fortunately, my professor there would make us read current events that were going on in science. And suddenly it struck with me that there were all these diseases where there were just no cures there were all these unknowns in biology. There were just things we absolutely didn't know nothing about. And I became fascinated with all the unknowns. And especially the idea that we could study and learn more about disease and then cure disease. And so I was hooked. I took semester number two. And by the second semester, I was changing my major. I wanted to become a biologist at that point. While Ashley, Katie, and Linda were on different paths, they eventually met at Stanford. Ashley, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we all ended up being postdocs in Carlos Bustamante's lab at Stanford, and I had come to Stanford from a slightly different direction. I was a, a clinical veterinarian before I applied for the cancer biology PhD, and I applied for that PhD because I was interested in exploring more about this intersection of, of what we can learn from animals and how it applies to humans and disease correlations. People are not really 
are not in the habit of looking at animal diseases and how it relates to human disease, but that's how we used to learn about science, right? That's where original biology came from was observing the natural world. And that's something that I think once we figure out how to genetically manipulate the mouse, we sort of forgot that that was important. Before the early 1900s, a lot of science insights came from observing natural animal biology. And then that kind of got lost for a hundred or so years. And now it's sort of coming back, but in a much richer and more complex and more nuanced way. Now we have more robust genomics and we can do RNA-seq and we can do these things that are much more like what we can do with human data. And so it's kind of a new era, but that's where we made a lot of our early discoveries. We discovered oncogenes by studying chicken tumors and a lot of cancer biologists don't know that, <laughs> right? Even though they study cancer biology. How did the three of you get along? Because you do bring different, different parts of it. How did you divvy up everything and work so well together. So I've worked with co-founders before, but you you guys have something really special in your relationship. I remember we, we sat down with Laura Deming. We were kind of talking about what we wanted to do with the company. And she asked us, we hadn't decided we were going to be co-founders. We hadn't picked roles at that point. Well, who's going to be the CEO? We all kind of looked around each other at the table and she said, well, you should probably talk about that at some point. And so we walked away from that meeting and said, well, I guess we should figure that out. And Katie said, you know, I'm the hibernation biologist. I should be the CSO. Okay, that makes sense. Linda said, well, I'm the computational biologist. I should be the CTO. And they know that makes sense. And then that <laughs> sort of left me. <laughs> and I think that speaks to the fact that we all have different skill sets and we all recognize that we have very different and very complementary skill sets and different areas of expertise that all overlap very nicely. And so it's been really wonderful being able to delegate all the things that we have to do within the company to people's different skill sets. And the fact that we are very different has been a really good source of strength for all of us, I think. Moving from academia to your own business, you've talked about a huge culture shift. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when you're in academia, a lot of it is on you. You're a one man, especially when you're at the level of postdoc as we were, you're pretty much a one man show. And so you do all the work, you have to kind of do all the self advertisement. And then when you become a PI, again, a lot of what's known is credited to you and your lab. But then when you go to run a company, it's different. It's more about the teamwork. And so when we started, we didn't even think about company culture. I mean, I've heard that buzzword, but I had no idea what it meant. But really, it's getting everyone to work as a team and getting everyone to bring their best selves to work, allowing our team members really to shine. I don't want to stifle their innovation. They've brought some amazing ideas to our company in the last year. It's more about how do we get everyone to work together and how do we get everyone to feel comfortable and trusted and to put their best selves out there every day. The one thing I'll, I'll add to that, the thing I always say is if you are not here at work to do the best possible science, go home and take a nap. Because what I have seen in my past is usually the big mistakes that set people back six months or a year happen on those days. They come in and they're really tired and you know, you're trying to slog through something. This happens to everybody from time to time. But the problem is when you're in a very large research project, it's the mistakes on those days that can mean the rest of the year goes poorly. So if your game is not really on that day, go take a nap. <laughs> It'll work out better. One of the things about being a co-founder and just the mindset is not just being curious, but also mission driven, that there's an itch that you feel 
like you can't help but scratching, similar to an artist. Is that true for you, Linda? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've long had this mission to have a very large impact on human health. The idea to start a company to some extent requires a lot of hubris because who are you to think you can completely disrupt the pharmaceutical industry and be able to take these great big drugs to market when there are lots of really big, well-funded companies who are struggling to do that. But yeah, I mean, I think really what drove me to this is this idea that it's probably easier to affect change when you're starting something from the ground up rather than trying to fix the very large system that's big and maybe has a lot of funding, but potentially has some fundamentals that are broken about it. And I think it really seemed like a, a great path to be on to where we could actually make a large difference. To actually make the difference. Okay. Katie, do you agree? Yeah, I'd say that's probably absolutely true with me. I started grad school going into human genetics and then ended up rotating in a hibernation lab. And I was just hooked on the phenotype that these animals could become near frozen half the year and then not die. And that what we were learning about them could be translated into human health. And I just couldn't get away from it. I just thought this was amazing. And I had to know how this is done and how can we translate this? And along the way, I've been discouraged that there's no money for it. Academia is really into human genetics and that these animals, it's really going to be hard to get funding. And so I actually started my postdoc doing human genetics again, thinking, okay, you know, there's everyone was saying you, you got a PhD in human genetics. Stick with that. That's where the money is. That's where you'll get funded. And everything I was learning in human genetics, all I could think about was why don't we just apply this to these animals that we've been studying in hibernation? Why can't we use the same techniques and do the same exact things? And so I just at one point decided, you know what, this is what I love. I'm not going to back off from this and I'll keep doing it until the money runs out. And then we had this amazing opportunity to start a company and really make this our mission. And so, yeah, it's been very <laughs> mission driven, I'd say. Well, the first person that I met, Ashley, was you, and we are fortunate enough to get to meet an awful lot of people who are mission-driven and care deeply, but you just got me with <laughs> the focus on hibernating animals curing disease and just the way you talked about it. What's something that you either heard as a child or growing up or wish you had that's really good advice? I think the thing that my mom impressed upon me when I was trying to figure out exactly what to do with my life is <laughs> she would always tell me, do whatever you do, like just do it the best that you can, right? Like pick a field, but then like take it to the next level. Don't kind of be satisfied with the status quo. And I think it's a mix of what Linda talks about in terms of hubris and saying, I think I can do this. And also a, a healthy mix of humbleness and admitting what you don't know. And I think that nobody starts anything new by themselves in reality. Like you always need advice and mentorship and how many people of the three of us talk to that have guided us along just not our careers but within fauna and like you might just be able to find one person who gives you that right piece of advice that really pushes you in a new direction and i think being constantly curious and being willing to jump on a phone with people and just ask questions and cold email people and stalk them on linkedin and you know just be a little bit bold but also like i said being humble about what you don't know and what you need to know to get where you're going but thinking about the big picture and saying what what is possible if this thing actually works where can we take this entire field of biology as opposed to just this one project that i work on and just having that be the larger goal 
goal and then figuring out the steps to get there really makes it very exciting. And I think all of us are in this stage where we would be doing what we'd be doing even if we won the lottery. And I think that that's where you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Like if I was not driven by needing a salary, would I still be doing what I'm doing? And definitely for me, that is like, what else would I do that is as cool as what we do? I don't know. I can't figure it out. Right, right. I haven't heard too many other things that are as cool as what you're doing. The curiosity and to keep that alive, to stay humble and be okay with what you don't know because that drives curiosity. The passion is a gift, would you say? If you're lucky enough in life to find something that you really want to do that you're passionate about, it does feel a bit like a gift. People go through their entire careers and it's just making a day-to-day. But if you really are lucky enough to find something you're passionate about, I think it's a gift. Yeah. Absolutely. I think passion is a gift. I spent the majority of my childhood being excited about various things, but you know, I would go from thing to thing and be like, oh, I'll be a dancer for six months. I'll do this for six months. And you don't really realize until you're a bit older, I think, that when you actually find a passion, that's where real like work and accomplishments happen because you have to be fixated on this idea for the long term for anything to be able to happen. And in some ways, you kind of have to be a little bit crazy, which goes along with passion to be fixated on one thing for, let's say, a decade or two of your life. Absolutely. That's a gift. And what is your advice? My advice is very much about openness and showing up to events. Similar to what Ashley said, when you're transitioning fields, we're all academics and we're trying to learn how to be savvy business women. You've really got to be open to potential mentors, people who are going to help steer you on the right path. Initially, I had thought that these people should be obvious through either their reputations or on paper, and I would know who they were and I could seek them out. But this is definitely not the case. You know, it's much better to show up to these networking events and interact with everybody around you and then figure out who are the really interesting people that maybe I can help them, they can help me. There was always this internal struggle with me, particularly the first year of our startup where I need to go home and do this analysis tonight. And then I'd also think, ooh, but there's this networking event happening too. What should I do? And it turns out both are important and you should really do both. So you will be up rather late. But honestly, the networking is just as important as some of the work that you're doing, the actual science. And that's something I didn't realize until we were several months into the process. And Katie, what about you? It's a little bit difficult to me because I can't imagine not having passion, not living my life without passion for something. I just feel like my life would feel a little bit more meaningless. But I know that's not true for everyone. So I would say it's a gift Along the same lines with Linda, once you have passion for something, that's where all the hard work begins. You really have to apply yourself, do what it takes. And that even if you're passionate about something, you can become burned out at the same time. I think my advice would be also learning how to be resilient because when you do love something and you have that vision and you just want to keep going with it, you're going to hear a lot of no's and you're going to have a lot of setbacks and failures and take those as learning experiences and ask yourself, okay, you know, I can only go up from here. Whenever I've failed, I always say I can only get better. (laughs) So I keep going and I learn from that experience so that I can continue the mission I'm driven on. And that's hard for everybody, whether you have found the passion or still in search of. And that's really good advice. I think a lot of times, even when you hear no from people, you can still learn from them. You get from them. Why are the reasons why you think it's not possible? And at all the times it will kind of 
let you know what is the next question that needs to be answered or what is the holdup, what's the next bottleneck. Even those interactions can be incredibly educational versus people are like, oh, this is great. You actually get a lot more feedback sometimes of people who are more skeptical. In three years, front page of New York Times, all about what you've discovered and cured. What would be the title that you would love to see? Can I put something crazy out there that um, we have now put humans into hibernation and we're sending them to Mars? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Anybody else? Mine's more funny. What I think would be cool is that if we had a headline like small startup company saves millions from heart attacks using only squirrel parts in the freezer. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that would be awesome, actually. So Mars, squirrel parts. Ashley, what about you? You know, something along the lines of what Linda says, minus the squirrel parts. But, you know, Fauna Bio, breakthrough medicine for heart attack or Alzheimer's using just hibernation, like data. Just data from animals gives us these insights. I think that would be amazing. That was Ashley Zender, Katie Grabeck, and Linda Goodman, co-founders of FaunaBio. FaunaBio studies genes in hibernating animals to find cures for human diseases. The next episode of Think Like a Founder is also our final episode for season two. I'll be talking to Serena Keith, co-founder of Me360. Me360 is a leadership training platform that uses live replay, trusted frameworks, and targeted skill building to turn best practices into real behavior change. Think Like a Founder is produced by SNP Communications in San Francisco, California. Learn more by visiting us at snpnet.com or connect with me, Maureen Taylor, on LinkedIn to continue the conversation there. Series producer is Roisin Hunt. Sound design by Mark Ream. Creative producer, Eli Shell. Content and scripting by Mike Sullivan. Production coordination, Natasha Thomas. Thanks also to Selena, Persiani Shell, John Hughes, and Ren Vara. This is Think Like a Founder.